Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Today we'll be discussing how businesses throughout history have distorted the facts in the face of clear evidence that they were causing harm. My guest is environmental attorney and author Barbara Fries. Her latest book is Industrial Strength Dial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change. Barbara Fries, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nick. So, so first off, just off the bat, what got you interested in this topic of corporate denial? Uh, well, as you said, I'm an environmental attorney. And for a number of years, I worked as an assistant attorney general uh, for the state of Minnesota. And I found myself uh, in a proceeding back in the, in the mid-1990s, uh, effectively litigating the science of climate change against the coal industry, and was faced with a lot of scientists that the coal industry brought to the state that were telling us that we didn't have to worry about climate change. And uh, as the years went on, I saw that denial spreading from the coal industry uh, really through society and, and into the political sphere and, and to the point where now climate denial uh, has, has a clear footing in, in the federal government and the White House. And I started thinking about this kind of denial, you know, not, not so much as individuals making a decision to ignore data, but as a social phenomenon. And that got me thinking about where else this particular social phenomenon has affected society uh, how it's affected society in the past, how other industries have reacted when confronted with evidence of harm. And um, that that's what got me to plunge into the archives and write this book. Sure. When we're talking about industrial denial, so wh- when does a company's actions reach that threshold of denial versus a company just vigorously defending itself for, from criticism and that sort of thing? Right. Well, and of course, that's a really hard question. There's going to be a big gray area for a long time. I picked eight different campaigns that were so clearly beyond the realm of reasonable doubt that I didn't really have to define that border. And and also I felt that because they were so far beyond the realm of reasonable doubt, they were particularly revealing examples of what an industry is willing and capable of denying. Sure. I think, I think the, the first example in your book is the, is the, the British slave trade. I think that, that's an industry we can all agree, uh, just patently on its face, the business itself is, is immoral and causes uh, massive amounts of harm. What were the campaigns used to defend that industry uh, during that time? Yeah, it was actually really astonishing. I mean, the British at that time, we're talking the late 1700s, early 1800s, dominated the global slave trade. They had the ships, they went to Africa, they got the Africans, enslaved them, and brought them mainly to sugar plantations in the Caribbean. And the British public uh, was was confronted with an abolition movement, which, which said, hey, this is brutal, and brought forth all kinds of evidence of that brutality. Uh, and the industry then really saw its, its legitimacy being threatened, and they knew they had an audience that really knew nothing about conditions in Africa, conditions on plantations, so they could pretty much say whatever they wanted to in terms of characterizing it. So they created this sort of alternate reality where they actually argued that the Africans wanted to be purchased, that some of them were marketing themselves as fit for labor. They, they explained that the crossing 
uh, across the Atlantic on the slave ships was festive with singing and dancing and lots of games of chance. They describe the sugar plantations as comfortable and, and sort of a, a cradle to grave welfare state where people were taken care of if they were sick and had their own cozy cottages. Um, and then by contrast, they, they explained that if they had not rescued these people from Africa, they would have been put to death as prisoners of war or eaten by cannibals or, or face some other uh, horrendous outcome. And, and so what happened there was they didn't just argue that, that, hey, we're not brutal. They could actually flip it around and say, we're the heroes, we're rescuing people, and abolition is a form of violence. And, and in fact, if you put an end to this trade, you are... Uh, as one of the quotes went, cramming liberty down the throats of people incapable of digesting it and shutting the gates of mercy on mankind, et cetera, et cetera. So that, so that was one of their denials. There were a lot of other kinds. Yeah, and I think one of the things you, you talk about uh, in the book is this idea that, that some of these folks who, are, who are, were part of, of disseminating some of, some of the, this narrative were people who, who you know, had, had religious backgrounds and were very much uh, moral, you know, had a strong moral footing. What is the, you know, when you're in a business and, and you're operating in, in this type of industry, how does that psychologically bias someone to try to come up with these defenses when I think, you know, in the case of slavery, it's very clear the harms that are being caused to, to, to individuals? Right. Well, that is a, a, a part of the book. I try to identify a lot of different psychological factors in play. Um, you know, overall, we're talking about a group enterprise. And when you're in, in a group, you feel loyal to that group, more so than to society more generally. So immediately your, your sort of tribal biases and, and animosities all come into play. Uh, obviously, money is at stake. I mean, I, I don't want to minimize that at all. It's always going to be a factor, the, the fact that, that denial is lucrative in, in many of these cases. Uh, you have issues of hierarchy. The people who are not at the top are deferring moral responsibility to those running the organization. And, and corporations are particularly prone to that because, of course, the people at the top of corporations, the major ones, are able to say, well, I'm acting on behalf of my shareholders. So to the extent they feel group loyalty, they're told by law, although this is there's some question about this, that they have to uh, maximize shareholder profits. They're told that that's the, you know, by, by the dominant sort of uh, business philosophy. Shareholders aren't feeling morally responsible because they're far away and they don't know what's going on. So uh, th there was a noted cynic in the 1920s that, that described the corporation as an ingenious device for delivering individual profit without individual responsibility. Um, and, and I think that's pretty accurate here uh, for a lot of reasons. And, and of course, one thing I, I want to add on top of the whole division of labor and division of responsibility uh, is, is the ideology of the marketplace and the psychology of the marketplace. You generally don't feel responsible for, for the other side of the transaction. Um, and of course, we do have an ideology that says that uh, the, the pursuit of your own self-interest will automatically, through the invisible hand, lead to social good. Um, and more recently, we have a, a more kind of market fundamentalism that is suggesting that government interference in the marketplaces is, is in, immoral and inappropriate. So I think the ideology, the psychology, the structure, uh, and I haven't even mentioned limited liability, but of course that goes along with it. Uh, all of these things combine to both enhance the natural interest in, in self-interest and pursuit of profit, while muting our natural social responsibility 
and I think triggers a lot of, of very tribal instincts that that bond people and bias people more toward their enterprise than towards society generally. Yeah, I think you see this this instinct of when you feel attacked, you'll circle the wagons and want to protect your you know your business, your industry, your livelihood, uh, that sort of thing. When you see these cases of denial, who are the types of people that expose? cases of denial and start to reverse this in the case of the slave trade and in some of these other industries that you discuss in the book? Well, it is almost always outsiders. I mean, you, you know, there are stories of whistleblowers and whatnot, but generally speaking, it's other segments of our society. The slave trade was largely driven by religious movements at the time, particularly the Quakers. In the case of other industries, it's typically outside scientists who discover that there's a problem. They are, there may be some activists involved, but, but often the next step is journalists. Uh, they will bring some attention to this. There might be a movement involving activists and, and other groups. There may well be lawyers if there's something, some liability that might be involved. Typically, then it will get some attention from the political realm, maybe state legislators, then somebody in Congress will have hearings, then there'll be a law. That's kind of the progression as it, as it normally unfolds. So another topic I, I wanted to talk about, obviously, we talked we talked about the, the slave trade, and I think that that's pretty clear, the harm uh, that it's causing to people. Some of the other issues uh, that you write about in the book are, are, are a little bit more attenuated between uh, the harm that was put in place and the product. You talk about radium, leaded gasoline, uh, things like that. When there's these multiple causations in, in place uh, around around what, uh, what what could be causing a harm that people are, are criticizing, what strategies do corporations use to kind of muddy the waters uh, uh, to, I guess, increase doubt and uncertainty among consumers and perpetuate the ability to, to sell their product going forward. Right. Well, increasing doubt really is the key there. And, and part of that is keeping the burden of proof on the other side so that you always get the benefit of the doubt. Um, using, for example, the tobacco industry, which is famous and sort of the poster child for sustained science denial. One of the things they would do was argue that maybe there was a, a separate cause that was causing people both to number one smoke and number two get lung cancer. So the you know statistically there was this epidemic of lung cancer that followed the rise of cigarette smoking um, a couple decades later as the latency period went on um, and almost all of the people getting lung cancer were smokers. And so statistically, I mean, the odds of this being random were a million to one. But so the industry was saying, well, maybe there's something genetic that makes people want to smoke and makes them prone to lung cancer. Or maybe it's something in their personality, something about stress. Um, then, of course, there, there are other arguments like, well, maybe it's stress that's actually causing the cancer. And because tobacco reduces stress among smokers, um, smoking actually could, could be a benefit to, to those worried about cancer. So, so pointing to other causes is a big part of it. Trying to, to kind of minimize the risk and put it in the category of accepted risks was often very common. They would say, well, you know, it, it, nicotine is no more addictive than gummy bears. And you know, I love gummy bears. And, and if I don't get them, I get cranky. But this is actually a quote from, from one of the tobacco executives. Uh, but, but they're not addictive. Um, Another category would be to uh, just try to, to minimize the notion of risk altogether, sort of blur things, uh, comparing 
again, the, the risks to uh, the risk of smoking to owning a dog or driving a car or kissing someone. These were all examples set forth in an article uh, written by someone who's being paid to write that article by the tobacco industry, a sort of front, um, but that wasn't revealed at the time. Um, so yeah, there lots of lots of different strategies there that relate to the notion of risk. Oh, and, and another very common one was to try to imagine a counterfactual that if you didn't smoke, other really bad things would happen. So I, I begin the book with a quote from a tobacco executive saying that, uh, who knows what the hell you'd do if you didn't smoke? You might beat your wife. You might drive cars fast. So trying to imagine all these other bad things that might happen. I think what you see there is an effort to create these sort of psychological rationalizations, both for other smoke, for the smokers, so they could rationalize taking an obvious risk, and for the industry itself, so they could continue selling the tobacco and not feel bad that they were selling a, a deadly and addictive product. Right. I mean, that, that's one one thing that I, I think about a lot with the, with the smoking topic, because even after uh, a lot of the regulation of the industry and, and changes in advertising, people continue to smoke. What do we do in the case where these these facts are, are well communicated to consumers, but but they choose to consume anyway, even after the, you know the denial has been exposed? Mm-hmm. Well. Again, if you look at the tobacco industry as an example, the facts pretty much came out in in 1964 with the Surgeon General's report, uh, and you saw only a fairly small dip in people's decision to smoke. I mean, the the evidence going directly to them had some effect, but not as much of an effect as you would expect. But what it did do was start changing social policy very, very slowly. But what you'd seen was that, that smoking rates had gone up and up and up and up until that time. Then they started to go down, down, down. And what drove them down, I think, wasn't so much the the scientific evidence, but the various social responses to that scientific evidence, including changing the advertising, changing um, where people were allowed to smoke, lots of social signals, some based in law, some just new cultures um, that, that reinforced that science. And so where we used to have, I think it was about 45% of adults smoking around then. Now it's down to something more like 14 or 15%. So um, it's been a very dramatic shift, not in direct response to this scientific evidence, but when that scientific evidence is converted into social signals that are sent consistently over time. Sure. Another topic I wanted to talk about, it kind of maybe links in with with the smoking idea and what you mentioned earlier of of pushing toward the special characteristics that the people who are harmed might have. Uh, and you mentioned fast driving and automobiles. That, that's another topic you talk about in the book of auto auto companies, despite being confronted with evidence that, that the design of automobiles, whether it's a, a lot of protuberances in the car, uh, uh, steering columns that could impale you in an accident, even even in the, in the, in the, in the face of some of that evidence, the industry chose to, to blame that on on poor drivers. Can you talk about that that campaign of denial and what the strategy was behind that? Sure, that chapter focuses mainly on the 50s and 60s in the auto industry. And the auto industry at the time was just booming. It was on top of the world, especially GM, which sold something like half the cars in the, in the US um, and had an enormous budget and, and so many engineers and engineering resources. Um, but, they basically decided that they were only responsible for the car before it crashed, because of course you weren't supposed to crash in your car. And if you did crash, that was evidence that you had done something wrong as the driver. 
and they really didn't want to take responsibility for what happened afterwards. They didn't want to study it, uh, and they didn't certainly want to make their cars more crash worthy. Now, to some extent, there were, were factual denials here, as well as just the kind of responsibility denial. The, the chief auto, uh, the, the chief safety engineer at GM, uh, there's some pretty astonishing quotes from him in the book basically saying in, in the 50s that he didn't really think seatbelts were going to offer you much protection in a crash beyond what you could get from just holding on properly to the steering wheel and bracing your feet, um, which, you know, for, for somebody who's supposed to understand these things is a particularly astonishing claim. Uh, but But generally speaking, the approach of the industry was, it's all about the drivers. We need to you know, train them, although of course it wasn't the industry training them, it would be the high schools mainly. We needed to have good roads and, and the government would build those. We'd need to have laws which governing traffic, which the government would have to pass and enforce. Um, and, and they basically tried to stay away from having any responsibility for what happens once the driver loses control of the car and, and physics takes over. And um, finally, a lot of people from outside the industry did a lot of research um, the, the rate of auto accidents was growing to a, a really alarming level. Uh, the public got involved, legislators got involved, and finally in the 60s, laws were passed putting in, in basic uh, safety requirements, and, and then the rates of death started a very, very long decline. Yeah, I, I, one, one of the things you mentioned in the book, I think the auto industry chapter is one of the, the better examples of the industry leaders explicitly saying we're focusing on, on our profit motive at the expense of maybe some other some other considerations. One example you give in the book is Ford in the late 50s introduced uh, some safety features to the market and then uh, actually removed those subsequently or removed access to them, citing this argument that safety doesn't sell, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, do you suspect that that automakers were purposefully not introducing safety products in order to in order to you know not allow folks to to be aware of, of what they what they're missing? I guess. You know, the the history of the auto industry is kind of surprising to me because you know clearly you don't lose a lot of you don't lose any market share if all of the automakers are putting in seatbelts or if all of the automakers are doing something safe. There was almost a, just more of a you know, a, a kind of basic ego thing involved. The industry did not want outsiders coming along and telling them how to design cars. And, you know, you'd have these very contrary arguments. For example, they would say, if you put seatbelts in cars, um, it, it will just encourage the nuts to drive in a crazier way and, and it'll actually be more dangerous. And at the same time, they would argue, if you put seatbelts in cars, it's going to remind people that this is a dangerous activity and that'll take the fun out of driving and people and that's just bad for the whole industry. Um, I, as I argue in the book, I think that was a ridiculous argument because the, the world, the United States was reinventing itself around the automobile at this time with the interstates and the suburbs and the drive-ins and, and you know there was just very, very little likelihood that people were suddenly going to stop driving if they had a seatbelt. Um, and of course, that didn't happen. The cars have gotten much, much safer, and and you know we've been continuing to drive them. Right, and I guess were the consumers aware of of, of the safety risk inherent in, in driving in, in driving cars, or or did they, was the marketing campaign of of uh, um, Nader and others really what made the, the general public aware of the risk? 
I think the, the work of Nader and others made the general public aware of the fact that you could make cars much, much safer. But the public was certainly aware that driving was dangerous. I mean, this was becoming a very salient issue in the public sphere. Um, and there would be these, these drives that would, would publish, you know, before every holiday weekend predictions of how many people were going to die. I mean, they were, they were really trying to just encourage people to drive more safely. Um, so it's not like the danger was hidden. Um, it, it was very evident. It was just that somehow they managed uh, as an industry to prevent people from thinking beyond the cause of the crash and focusing on the cause of the injury. And, and making that leap, that mental leap, would prove to be very important in, in figuring out how to bring that death toll down. Right. I think, I think in all these cases that we see in the book where there's multiple causation, you always see these, these businesses try to find some other, you know, it's not, the, it's not what we're doing. It's what some other business uh, is doing to really, really change the narrative. One other kind of anecdote for, from the book or chapter from the book I wanted to go into is the chapter on CFCs and the ozone layer. And I, I think this one stands out among the other uh, vignettes that, that you tell in the, in the book in that it was probably the quickest to go from discovery of the risk to CFCs being banned. Any, do you have any insights on, on why that was or what made CFCs special there? Yeah, well, a couple things. First of all, just to remind your, your listeners, CFCs were used in aerosols. They were a propellant, and so they were in hairsprays and deodorants and, and all kinds of spray cans. They were also used in for refrigeration and air conditioning. Um, so, and, and these issues were sort of attacked in, in two different in two different periods. First of all, the uh, well, first of all, this issue was not understood at all until the 70s, and some scientists looked at, uh, tried to, to figure out what is the ultimate fate of these CFCs, the chlorofluorocarbons, and realized that they'd be going up into the stratosphere and they would come apart under solar radiation and then they would deplete the ozone, which protects us from dangerous solar uh, radiation. But they didn't have any evidence this was happening at the time. This was just based on their understanding of the physics. Um, and they, and they uh, raised the alarm in the 70s. The aerosol industry, which, which knew nothing about atmospheric chemistry, um, basically responded very directly by saying that this was an attack on capitalism. I mean, this was an era where a lot of industries were facing criticism, and they, they saw this as an attack on capitalism. I've got a quote from the head of one aerosol company blaming the KGB. Um, they basically argued that they all needed to be, you know, defending free enterprise by responding to these zealots and alarmists. But the, the use of, the, of CFCs in an aerosol was such a trivial benefit and it could be so easily replaced that uh, early in the 70s, that was under actually the Ford administration, uh, they said, okay, we don't know for sure if this is happening, but the risk is so huge and, and these are so easy to replace that industry, you got a couple of years to replace them. And the industry said, okay, and they did, and it wasn't a big deal. Then uh, the, the question of the harder question of replacing CFCs from air conditioning and refrigeration was there. Uh, and, and the government was starting to tackle that, the EPA, but then Reagan got elected and the threat of regulation went way down. The industry stopped looking at this issue uh, until the ozone hole over Antarctica was discovered in the mid 80s and then alarm rose again. Uh, and then very quickly after that, we had the Montreal Protocol, uh, the, the global agreement that would eventually ban CFCs. And fairly soon after that, you actually had the chemical industry saying, okay, 
this is enough evidence. After all of these years of denial, they said, we accept the science, we're going to stop making our product, even a little bit before the law required them to stop making their product. They basically didn't resist the, the exit. What I think makes this a particularly unique case is that there wasn't a CFC industry, there was a chemical industry and CFCs were just one of their products. They could move on and manufacture the replacement products for CFCs. Um, and, and so I think that made this much different than say the tobacco industry uh, or the fossil fuel industries where the, the product causing the harm is at the core of their industry. Yeah, I think another important factor that I think about with CFCs, as you mentioned, is there was the ozone layer, this clear, demonstrable harm uh, affecting the entire world uh, in that a lot of these, uh, we can move on to global warming now, uh, this this idea of the buildup over time is causing harm. But, but until we see this catastrophic issue like a hole in the ozone layer or that sort of thing, is there just a psychological barrier for people to want to not move away from the status quo? Sure. I mean, the, the one problem that climate change activists have always had, those trying to protect the climate, is that climate change manifests as natural phenomenon, just more severe ones or more common ones. And so that does make it harder. And the ozone hole, I mean, what's strange about this, of course, is that nobody saw the ozone hole. It wasn't like it was you know, directly affecting people. It was over Antarctica, an uninhabited place. Uh, and they still had to trust the scientists to tell them that this was there and that this is a threat. So in some sense, the ozone hole shouldn't have been as scary as say California burning down, um, but it was scary because people had never seen anything like it, but also it was a more trusting time. And what happened after what I think we can all call the success of responding to the threat to the ozone, was you know, a lot of efforts from other industries facing regulation to basically build distrust in science, certainly the kind of science that the government relies on for regulation. And that distrust building really picked up you know, in, the, in the 90s and beyond to the point where now, even though the, the scientific consensus around the threats of, of, of climate change are, is so strong and the evidence really is accelerating all around the world, there is still a significant chunk of the population that doesn't believe it's happening, believes that the mainstream scientific global community has per perpetrated this sort of 30, 40, 50 year hoax. Um, that was not the case in, in the 80s and 90s when CFCs were being phased out. So I want to move on to the, the global warming issue and, and oil companies and, and those topics. As we mentioned uh, with, with tobacco, obviously some of those issues uh, became apparent, um, but the company, the, the, the tobacco company's public statements differed from, from what, they, what they communicated in private, et cetera. And I think you see a similar, uh, similar characteristics with the oil industry. So when you look at oil businesses, how do their internal documents, their internal communications about, around their concerns about climate change differ from the way they discuss climate change publicly with, with their public relations campaigns, et cetera? Well, I, I don't go too deeply into that because a lot of the, to the extent we're talking about their internal communications, a lot of them go way back. Um, some of those have been archived and made public. We do have documents from the late 70s and early 80s from companies like Exxon talking about climate change, talking about the scientific consensus and, and the future harm. And, and they actually were doing their own research in collaboration with, with outside researchers and, and publishing it. 
And, and basically their own um, approach to it was that, yeah, this, this is going to be a crisis. And, and there, there wasn't an internal, this is wrong. We, we have to question this science. There was an acceptance of the science around the early, around the late seventies, early eighties. But by the late eighties, when, for example, we were, were dealing with uh, ozone through the Montreal Protocol. We had put together the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to look at fossil fuels and CO2 and climate change. The, the threat of regulation became much more real. That's when you saw the oil industry and others um, basically trying to stoke as much doubt as possible. And, and one of the things that I think becomes clear from this history is that if you are an industry trying to prevent regulation, you do not need to convince people that you are right, that uh, you don't need to convince them that the science that the, the, uh, your opponents are using is wrong. You just need to create doubt. And that's enough to paralyze uh, a lot of movements. It's enough certainly to paralyze legislatures. And that's often enough to prevent any regulation. So, so raising doubt, even if you do it in fairly subtle ways, uh, and, and that's something, of course, the oil industry did for a long time, uh, can be very, very effective. Right. So that, that tie goes to a runner, goes to the runner mentality, if you want to use like a, a baseball hmm. reference. For, for you as an individual, you know, it, obviously people in the industry are, are aware of the facts on the ground, scientists, etc. Do you have any advice for an individual, an individual citizen, to try to suss out the truth from denial when you're keeping track of, of what's going on in business in your everyday life? Well, you know, we, we do have all kinds of systems we've set up over the decades regarding science um, to, to try to separate good science from bad. You know, you, you need to make sure the science has been peer reviewed. Uh, you want the science to come from a lot of different sources. If, if you've got multiple lines of evidence coming to the same point, that's very important. For the big issues, we bring in the big guns. We bring in the National Academy of Sciences. We pull together panels of experts, uh, advisory panels to the EPA, and, and we ask them to look at the science. And, and once the scientific evidence has been through those processes, that's very reliable science. And, and so I think it's incredibly risky to ignore that kind of science. Indeed. I, I, one, one point you talk about in the book, though, is this idea that, as you mentioned, if there's any doubt, uh, there's an advantage to, to corporations. And in a lot of these instances um, of denial, there, there are cases where corporations, there, there's, there's always some ambiguity uh, when it comes to science in any, any developing field. And the corporations will find some scientists or some group of scientists that, that fit the, the narrative that they need, they need to you know, communicate to the world and then will amplify uh, that perspective. How, how do you, as someone who kind of susses out news, how do you separate out or how do you distinguish when, when these folks are, are experts coming from motivated reasoning versus the accepted science? As, as a total novice who hasn't done any research on the industry and just turned on your TV on Saturday mm -hmm. night or what have you. Well, I won't pretend it's it's really easy to do. I mean, for some of these issues, after a few decades, you sort of get an idea of, of, of what's what real and what isn't. Um, but But I do look at the source, you know, to the extent that the science is coming from an independent source, I'm, I'm going to take that a lot more seriously than the science being provided by uh, the industry or the scientists that the industry is promoting. That doesn't mean you don't listen to them and it doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong, but you have to recognize that they are always going to have a sustained financial incentive and a whole lot of psychological biases that are going to prevent them from being objective. 
Right. I think one of the quotes from the book that kind of best illustrated that was there was uh, one uh, oil group. I, I don't remember the name of the group itself, but they had a quote about ExxonMobil calling them part of the, quote, discredited and anti-energy global warming movement. So that just can, can go to show how, how some of these groups uh, can get really out there on a limb uh, yeah. after a while. Yeah. That was from the Heartland Institute, which Exxon used to fund years ago um, and which is one of the more extreme uh, groups arguing that climate change is a hoax. Uh, and now they they are not as extreme. I mean, Exxon is is no longer in uh, no longer denying the basic facts of climate change. Um, and, and so that makes uh, it means that they've got, you know, their, their former fundees turning against them. They've sort of fueled this monster and it's still there. Now, who knows um, to what extent that that's a problem for Exxon, because while they are saying, yes, climate change is real. Yes, our products uh, causing it. Yes, we have to do something to reduce emissions. And they're even saying we support the Paris Agreement. Um, they are still projecting their uh, oil production, for example, global oil production to rise a bit and then and then sort of level out until 2040. Um, but what they're not acknowledging um, and what I think is important for your listeners to understand is that the IPCC is telling us that in fact, our emissions have to be cut uh, roughly by half by 2030 if we're going to keep warming under 1.5 degrees centigrade, or or I think it's more like 25% by 2030 if we're going for the two degrees. These are targets that aren't going to make us safe. They're going to they're targets that are going to make us safer. Um, so I think you have this interesting case there of an industry that is no longer directly denying the science, but still hasn't really integrated the implications of that science into its own projections and its own decision making. What do you think is the path forward for some of these oil companies or hydrocarbon companies more broadly? Clearly, there's a mandate and the science shows that we need to reduce our emissions, but also we need to keep the lights on. So how do you think the path forward should be for these companies when it comes to continuing to exist as a business in the 21st century? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just, I just honestly don't know what's going to happen. If I were an oil company and my goal was to keep my oil company going, or if I were own shares in, in that oil company uh, and, and hoped, hoped to see a way for that industry to survive, I, I just don't honestly see how it can at this point. Now, if Exxon and, and all the oil companies and all the fossil fuel industry had back in 1980, say, uh, started to take this seriously, they could have. They would have had time to convert themselves into something that isn't all about fossil fuels. They could have become energy companies. And and you do see, for example, British Petroleum now. I think they're the first company that's come forth and said we really are going to slash our production of oil and gas in the next ten years. Um, and and we'll see if if they can do that. But the problem is, of course, they have waited so long that I have no idea if they can convert themselves in, into something sustainable as the world moves away from their core product. They are very late in the game. Yeah, you mentioned BP. It's been, been a number of, of European uh, oil companies, BP, BP and others, trying to invest more in renewable energy. Part of what's driving that is this growth of ESG investing, environmental, social and governance, where investors are, are pledging not to invest in companies that don't satisfy uh, those requirements. What do you think about that growth uh, in ESG investing and more mindfulness among shareholders in that uh, uh, realm? Yeah, I think that's helpful. Um, I, I think it's one of the factors pushing pushing companies in the right direction. 
Um, but I also think that because we are at this point where we need to make such dramatic changes in the next 10 years, um, I, I think all of these companies need to be taking very seriously the prospect of laws like the Green New Deal. Obviously, it depends on what happens in November. Um, but I think we're going to be seeing uh, very dramatic legal changes or, or a push for those, which, which uh, I hope will succeed. Um, so I, I think that things that the you know investor concern has been keeping the the better industries alive and maybe keeping the more polluting industries from doing some of the bad things but i think things are going to now soon be moving beyond that stage where it's really going to be driven more by laws than by uh, investor preferences but that brings me to the next question I want to ask. You're an attorney. You have a background uh, uh, in the law. If you were in charge for the day, how would you change the law to help make corporate denial less likely and improve the system? Well, let me let me divide that into a different a couple of different categories. One is to try to make corporate denial less harmful, and that is to reduce corporate power, basically, and over our over our democracy, over our political system, because. The pattern we see over and over again is that corporate denial happens, other segments of society push back against it, and, and eventually the harm is reduced. Maybe it's eliminated, maybe it's just reduced. Um, so reducing corporate power, reducing their ability to influence our laws is probably the first step. And partly that's electoral, partly that maybe is about campaign finance reform, things like that. Um, the other question, how do you make corporate denial less likely in the first place, is I think a much longer term one. Um, we, we certainly see some industries experimenting, some corporations experimenting with uh, benefits corporations, for example, putting um, other missions, missions other than maximizing shareholder profit into their mission statement and trying to make it clear that, that that's a, a part of, of who they are. Um, we've seen socially responsible investing and, and socially responsible consuming and, and those factors. I think that's helpful because it helps the people in the corporations who want to reduce harm uh, argue that, that those are the right policies. Um, I'm honestly not sure where that's going to go. I, I encourage that experimentation. I hope we can figure it out. We may, you know, way down the line, find ways to really change corporations more profoundly um, so that this kind of denial isn't isn't so reliably present, uh, but I think that's a much longer term uh, endeavor, and and I hope that today's experimentation with different kinds of organizations and different kinds of missions will inform that. Yeah, so, so I asked a few questions about how do you spot corporate denial in, in real time? When you, when you look at the book, you have eight instances of corporate denial, and when I look at the table of contents, it looks like it's about in chronological order. So if you had to add a ninth chapter, a ninth story of what's going on in corporate denial, something that, that's going on right now, topical today, what would it be and why? Hmm. I, I am really keeping my eye on social media generally and, and big tech generally. Um, I, I can't pretend to be enough of an expert to really understand what's going on, but I, but I do think that let, let's not make it another chapter. Let's make it another book and let's not make it me. Let's make it somebody who's more tech savvy writing about this. But, but we've got, you know, a lot of things going on there, some of which are reminiscent of earlier chapters, harms being done, industries claiming, no, they couldn't have possibly done it. Facebook claiming they couldn't have had an influence on the 2016 election. I, I think Mark Zuckerberg later 
um, apologize for calling it crazy to think that his, his little company could have had much of an influence. Um, but I think what's going on here is social media is not just in denial about some of its harms, but it becomes a vector for denial by all of these other industries. So I look forward to somebody writing that book that, that really talks about all of the different denials and that were perpetrated by the industry and also just spread uh, by the industry. And, and hopefully it won't take too many years before we put in place the, the social reforms we need to constrain some of those abuses and denials. Yeah, I, I think social media is, is a great example of one. It, it's got all those characteristics you talked about of multiple causation, the issues that come up uh, from social media. You, know, you could attribute it to a bunch of different causes. It's a new technology. Uh, you know, we talked about radium. It was something that was discovered that took a number of years before society realized the harm in place. Um, and, and as you mentioned, the messaging is incredible. Uh, we can talk about slavery. These are pamphlets in favor on the, the pro-slavery lobby putting out today. Uh, this is an incredible social media campaign with, with bot networks and, and all that sort of thing. Do you think, I mean, will we see more corporate denial going into the future, given how much easier the Internet makes some of these campaigns to carry out and to target people specifically who might agree with you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that you're going to be seeing more and more and. You know, you, you compared uh, the, the technology to radium. I think you can also compare it to nicotine because of its addictive nature. And, and when cigarettes were being promoted, people just had no idea how they affected the brain. And of course, that made it a, a real growth industry. And I think we're seeing the same thing with social media. And it's going to take a while to, to understand it. Uh, it's certainly going to take a while to push back because not only is it a, a, tech, a new technology with lots of unintended consequences, but it is right now an incredibly powerful industry. And, and you know, uh, sometimes I look at that and I think, well, at least that means the fossil fuels industry isn't quite so powerful. And maybe that will give us a little bit more of a, a, an ability to tackle climate change. Uh, but, but certainly it's a new industry that's going to be raising lots of new problems and, and denying them. And we'll be talking about it a lot more, and we'll be waiting for that book uh, you mentioned uh, sometime in the future for, for you or somebody else to really break down all the ways that social media contributes to this uh, corporate denial trend. Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us on the podcast here today. If folks want to find your book or keep track with the work that you're doing, where can they go do that? Uh, well, the title, Industrial Strength Denial, you can you can buy that wherever fine books are sold. Uh, I have a website, barbarafreeze.com, and that will also link you. Awesome. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show for Barbara Freeze. I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and full on. Cool